Hi, everybody. Welcome to the August 9th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on former Denver Press Club president and Colorado politics reporter John Enslin passing away at the age of 65 this week. The veteran journalist covered Denver politics and had previously worked at the Rocky Mountain News as well as newspapers in New York and New Jersey. Patty Cahoon from Westward, it has been a really tough year at Colorado politics. We've lost some legends over there. Uh, this one hit a little bit deeper. What do you think? Partly because John Enslin was such a nice guy. So he was a big talent, but he had such a big heart. That's what, you, oh, that's what I remember. He came to me 25 years ago when the press club was about to die and he, they wanted to start the Damon Runyon Awards and he was trying to bring together us with the Post and the Rocky Mountain News, bringing everyone together and putting on a show, which Damon Runyon would appreciate. And I think also Damon Runyon would have appreciated the character that John Enslin was. He was a gentleman. He was a hard worker. He was a great journalist. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, Enslin made his own impact in politics. We, we don't have a lot of folks who've been covering politics as a reporter for so many years the way Enslin did. Uh, he knew their community very well, and he was an expert as a reporter. And to, to follow up on, on Patty's point, sometimes people think, well, you know, who's the core of the Denver journalistic community? And you might think some guy who's on the, you know, a, a host, an anchor on the, the evening local news. Well, that guy may be the, the most famous but when you go to the heart, it was absolutely John Enslin because he was such a leader in the, the professional associations, behind the scenes, networking, helping people out, really trying to, to advance the craft. And he's one of those guys where you'd say he's, his influence, of course, was what he did as in public, the stories he wrote. But there was so much additional influence behind the scenes in the, the many, many ways he worked to help other journalists be better. And back to the table after a long respite, our, our very, very good friend, political analyst, Penfield Tate. Uh, we know you want to be somewhere else right now, but we are grateful that you're uh, back to join us, Penn. Uh, when you look at Ensign's career, he, one of the big races he followed was uh, the mayor's race when you were running. Did you run into him there? What kind of interactions did you have with John Enslin? No, I, I, I had a chance to work with John a lot. Not only did he interview the candidates, but he was actually the moderator on several of the mayoral forums. And so we got to see him a number of times. I agree with everything David and Patty said, but beyond that, John was known as a political reporter who was fair, who was a straight shooter, but, but he was a tough interviewer, but he had a way of interviewing you and asking you hard questions and driving to the point without being loud and offensive and rude and, and just basically making it an unpleasant experience. You, you had to be on your P's and Q's, um, but you finished the interview and you kind of wanted to thank him for being there and interviewing you. That's, that's sort of the, the, the way he approached it. He'll, he'll be greatly missed. Um, and frankly, we were just blessed to have him as long as we did and filling the roles that he filled in the community. And columnist with Colorado Politics, a colleague of John Enslin's, Lynn Bartles joins us. Lynn, it's great to have you here. Uh, you, I think I remember reading one of your pieces. You even had a lunch scheduled with John just a, a, a week from when he passed away. What, what's been the impact? John and I sat side by side at the Rocky. We were both cop reporters, you know. And uh, the thing is, I don't think of John as a political reporter, like you have all said, because I think of him as a storyteller. And he, when he came back in March, which he was so thrilled to come to Denver, to come back to the city he loved, you know, then he got handed the mayor's race and he did stuff about Denver. But I have never, there's two things that have really struck me. Is one, if you would ask me 
pre-Monday, who are like some of the greatest journalists in, Den journalist in Denver, I don't think people would have said his name. It was only after he died that people went, wow. He wasn't flashy, but he was the steadiest guy going. Also, two words over and over, nice and kind. Not many journalists are described that way. I don't think those were the two words ever used to describe me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You've had a lot of other positive adjectives thrown your way, Lynn, but don't worry about that. I think uh, anybody would like to, uh, at, at the end of their day, to be called uh, kind and nice and uh, a consummate professional. I'm certainly, uh, he will certainly be missed. Following two mass shootings over the weekend, conversations about red flag laws similar to the one passed in Colorado and universal background checks have made national headlines. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, along with more than 200 other mayors, signed a letter asking the U.S. Senate to vote on the bills expanding background checks for gun sales. Patty, uh, sadly, Colorado again becomes, uh, if not an expert, at least some, uh, a, a state, a community with a lot of perspective on these laws and this issue. Do you think what's happened here with, in regards to the legal situation will become broader conversation on the national level? It's hard to imagine it can become any louder than it is right now, although we thought that after Sandy Hook, too. I think we need Wayne LaPierre to go into that Dallas mansion, if he gets it, for $6 million Dallas mansion, lock him in, take away his phone, take away his access to Wi-Fi, definitely any Twitter, and let Mitch McConnell figure out what he's going to do. I think it's going to be tough to call the Senate back into session if he can't work a deal out, but it seems to me at this point they could when you, we certainly know that there's a red flag language that people can agree on, thanks to David Kopel, who will expand on that. We know that background checks, we even have Trump saying that we will look at it. We might be able to come up with language for assault rifles and automatic weapons. I mean, certainly, David, again, somebody's got to be able to define that, even though people in the Senate thinks it's so hard. Those aren't the only answers, mental health just being aware, look at what happened in Missouri yesterday where they managed to stop what looked like a horrifying incident with a shooter. We've got to attack this from every angle, but the solution is not to ignore it because clearly it's not going away. David, I would piggyback on Patty's comments noting that I don't think there's any one solution uh, out there, whether you like it or hate it, uh, a red flag law or mental health or anything is not going to solve all of it. But it feels that generally people want to see some sort of progress. Do you see something possible on the national level when it comes to either red flag bills or uh, universal background checks? Uh, potentially. The, the challenge is between actual truly progressive things that will improve public safety while respecting civil and constitutional rights versus other stuff that is just, as is always the thing, the, the gun ban lobbies try to ram things through in an atmosphere of crisis and uh, hope that people don't notice what's actually in the, the destructive bills they're promoting. I seriously doubt that Mayor Hancock or most of these other 200 mayors who signed that letter have ever read H.R. 8, the so-called Bloomberg background check bill. That is a bill that felonizes literally millions of people who'd never sell guns. It allows the government to impose unlimited taxes on the purchase of a gun, and it's a handgun ban for young adults. Now, you could be for or against those ideas, but to call that a background check bill is typical of the lies uh, that the Bloomberg PR machine puts out for its useful idiots. Uh, last week, 
I was in Washington, D.C., meeting with Senator Graham and Senator Blumenthal on their draft red flag bill. And we had a, a very good discussion. Um, the bill has not, will not be, cannot be introduced until the Senate returns on September 10th, as it normally will do, and should not certainly let Michael Bloomberg bully it into uh, changing that. And I, I think it's going to be a very strong bill in terms of help, being helpful for public safety and being uh, strong on due process, uh, which the Colorado bill and many of the uh, other state laws uh, have fallen far short on. Penn, these shootings were not just about guns. Clearly, this was there, there was a whole different tact here, uh, especially when we look at El Paso. Uh, how do you see those ramifications moving forward? They're huge. They're going to drive the conversation. And, and I get David's point, but part of the problem is with, with the, the influence that Wayne LaPierre has demonstrated he has with, with Donald Trump and and I understand waiting until after the August recess, but the problem Mitch McConnell has is the longer you wait to do something, the greater the impression you give folks that you really don't intend to do anything. And I think the general public is saying that's no longer acceptable. You've got not just what we do with guns and how people access them and use them in this community. You have Donald Trump whose rhetoric has in some way, in the minds of many, I'm one of them, fueled some of the animus that some of these offenders have and have articulated that that's why they're doing some of the things they do. Now, you, you, you can't legislate how people think and how they feel. I get that. But you can't legislate how they act and what they can do to get access to things like guns. So Mitch McConnell's in a trick bag. I mean, I'm glad David met with folks and he saw a bill that he thinks is very good, but they better put it on the table fast and quick. We've had two shootings. We've had the incidents where they stopped another situation. If more and more of these events occur before the Senate leisurely returns to Washington, D.C. to take some action, people aren't going to be very patient with them. We've got a nation that's angry now because the vast majority of people want to see some progress made on background checks and assault weapons and a host of other things. They better act quickly. Uh, Lynn, it feels that the, the the drive for some sort of action might also come from the fact that people can find a reason to not feel safe almost anywhere. A garlic festival, uh, a Walmart, a, and it's not as if people weren't already were already feeling safe with a, a church or a school or anywhere else. But uh, it, it's it's a deeper feeling. I was at a uh, a bluegrass and beer festival in the middle of Keystone, and there was part of me look around the crowd going, "Well, oh, geez, there's a lot of balconies here." I don't know if we can legislate anything that could stop that, but it feels it's going to drive some action. What do you think? Well, I have gone to the Garlic Festival, by the way, just for the record, to full disclosure. Um, I, the weird thing is, I mean, how many times you've read the phrase, that couldn't happen in a place like this? Well, it does happen in a place like this. It happens in very average, ordinary places. It's surprising, this is terrible to say, that it doesn't happen more in those kind of places. There's a lot of people. You don't necessarily have to go through security to get to things, that sort of thing. I don't think that they should go back before September 10th. I I think I'd rather have something thoughtful than something fast. Um, the fact that you're talking with people, David, means that at least people want to do it right. The biggest thing I took out of all this was my shock in hearing President Trump say we need more red flag laws, which, of course, didn't he say that? Am I? Yeah, but that, he's, he said that last year, too. Right. But 
that is such a phrase in this state where you're trying to recall a sheriff over it and you're trying to do all this. I'm like, okay, so Neville's, Dudley Brown, etc. Red flags, not necessarily bad. I think also overlooked was really that this shooting in, in El Paso, which I have relatives from that area. They, that has been a, a by, you know, community of people just walking across the border for years. And this, we're going to go and get, you know, Mexicans. And that, it was just so horrifying. Mm-hmm. It was like a hunt. Yeah, it, it definitely did feel that there's a different tenor here than how uh, our elected leader is going to respond to that. will be interesting to watch. Newly obtained surveillance video shows two Colorado Springs police officers chasing 19-year-old Devon Bailey, an African-American male, and then later shooting him. The police department said that Bailey reached for a weapon, and that's when police officers shot him. Others question the testimony due to the fact that it does not appear the victim has carrying a weapon in the video. Uh, David, clearly there's a big investigation to follow. We don't know all the facts. John Southers, former state attorney general, is the mayor of Colorado Springs. Do you feel that is going to bring uh, a different perspective to this investigation? No, because uh, he's not in charge of the investigation. And the uh, the procedures here that are being followed are very good. This was a shooting by Colorado Springs city police officer. The facts and the investigation are being conducted by a different law enforcement agency, the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. Then, as is standard in all uh, cases of police shootings, the information will be turned over to the district attorney, and the district attorney will review it and make a decision whether the officer acted lawfully or not, and then take steps uh, accordingly. You, I've, I've watched the, the video. It's not enough in itself for anybody to come to any kind of conclusive decision. The, for example, one of the uh, individual's relatives said actually he was carrying a gun, but he didn't he didn't uh, draw the gun. So there, you know, in, in any kind of fast-moving situation, witness uh, perceptions differ. So I, um, I, I think in the the law, by the way, has is and always has been that both law enforcement officers and law-abiding citizens may use deadly force in, for self-defense in some circumstances and also to prevent the escape of certain fleeing violent felons. And certainly the individual in this case had a very uh, major record of violent felonies. Penn, we don't hear a lot of things out of Colorado Springs, I think, really uh, of this nature, but it's Colorado's second biggest city by a lot. Uh, it's not immune from other problems, and I'm not saying this is a, immediately a problem, but it's getting national headlines. W- what have you taken away from what we know so far? Yeah, it's getting national head times, headlines because we need to think of the context. So today is what? The fifth anniversary of the shooting of, of Michael Brown in, 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 in St. Louis, Missouri, an, another unarmed African-American teenager who was killed by a police officer and there was an investigation and no one was charged and we've seen it over and over and over again. On the heels of that you see news reports where um, one of the major networks reported that in a number of police departments um, they've indicated they've started training on implicit bias but results are mixed and some of them aren't doing anything. This is another situation where many people in the country feel the issue is being ignored and that too many unarmed young African-American men are getting shot in the back 
often fatally, by police officers, and no one is held accountable, investigation or not. So Colorado Springs will be front and center. It will be something talked about because it's part of a a growing epidemic that we still see around the country. Lynn, it reminds me of the, sometimes of the prevalence of video in our society. It's like the scenes from Fahrenheit 451 in the movie where there's cameras covering everything. And we're getting to the point where there's cameras covering a whole lot of things, especially something like this. Is that changing our perspective of how we look at issues like this? I saw the video, and maybe it's my bad eyes. You see I have my reading glasses here. But I didn't see anything that could make me say, oh, my gosh, you know, because... You don't know about the weapon thing. That is a huge part of it. John Southers did weigh in on it as the mayor and said, we'll wait for the investigation, which is what you kind of have to do. I think when you uh, start to look at this critically is when you have the results of the investigation and you see what happened there. The conflicting testimony, he had a gun, he didn't have a gun. Patty, wrap it up for us. Well, when Lynn was talking about it can't happen here, one of the things about Colorado Springs is it has a reputation as a very pretty and fairly safe town, but it's had a lot of issues lately, certainly some issues over gangs and racism. This is one where until the investigation is done, we're not going to know what really to think, but in the meantime, it's going to heat up tensions in that town. In a surprise surprise move this week, the Denver City Council voted to not renew the contracts with the Geo Group and Core Civic, private firms managing halfway houses in Denver. The companies have come under criticism for the management of ICE detention centers, including one in Aurora, and now the council is faced with the challenge of replacing the services the companies provided to over 500 individuals in Denver. Uh, Penn, this was uh, a a surprise move because it looked like these contracts were just going to get, I don't want to say rubber stamp, but it it did not look like there was going to be a challenge. It changed during the meeting and and from the efforts of Councilwoman C. DeBaca. Uh, Are we looking at a new council with a lot of other new tricks up their sleeve like this? Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that was clear during the election cycle is that people in Denver wanted change on a number of different levels. And Candace Edebaca is one of the new council people that reflects that changed approach, that changed attitude that people want to see with regard to their city government. Um, And I think it's interesting that this is where she sort of took her early stand and exerted her influence with city council to change something that people thought was a fait accompli. Now, you know, there's a flip side to this. You wonder what happens to the people who are in these facilities who now may end up going to jail or losing jobs or other things because the contracts are canceled. I've been told that what what this really does is it stops the renewal, but that the city will immediately begin negotiating the contracts with the provider under different terms and conditions to address some of the issues that the community has, has, has put forward. But I think it's an in, it's interesting display of strength, and it shows that there may be a new council majority forming that's going to impact policy in the future. Lynn, are we about to learn a lot more about halfway houses and zoning codes and a lot of other details in Denver that we may not have understood before? Well, I think those issues have always played out. I covered shootings where, you know, the halfway, the guy in the halfway house got out and killed somebody and that sort of thing. I think what this speaks to actually is um, the chief of staff for this councilwoman, Lisa, who has contracts, who had, who knows the criminal justice. And I think that's her exerting her influence. I was told that she had told people, I know this isn't going to pass, but, and then it passed. Um, 
you do worry about the 500 people that are there. I mean, these can contracts expired uh, at the beginning of the month, and they were just kind of working and doing them. So I'm sure that they'll do something for these 500 people. But it's not often that the Denver City Council takes a vote and said, we're going to do something that could harm 500 people trying to get their life back. You're speaking of Lisa Calderon, yes. uh, Chief of Staff of Councilman C. DeBaca. Uh, Patty Wester has a great piece on this. What are some of the details we need to know? Well, beyond the details, which is it was a surprise to everyone pretty much that this did pass, clearly the recent news about GEO and the, uh, the protests out at the immigration detention facility in Aurora, which is run by GEO, really affected this vote too. But it's not just the 500 people that may not have a place to be soon. It's the ones coming in the pipeline. Already, the way prisoners who have done served their time and then are released is like writing them a ticket to recidivism. They don't get they don't get training. They if the halfway house is their best bet if it's a well-run halfway house. And so we need a lot more oversight of that. We need to make sure if we're going to invest in these prisoners coming out and getting back into society, let's make sure it works. David, are, are we seeing a changing face of the city council? Um, uh, yes, and, and uh, as Michael Dukakis, the uh, Democratic presidential nominee, said, it's not about ideology, it's about competence and uh, a growing lack of that on the part of the Denver City Council. Uh, at least based on the, the news coverage of this decision, there was no real significant problems or criticism of how these companies are operating their halfway houses for the city of Denver and their contract. Rather, the companies were punished for virtue signaling purposes by open border advocates because they also contract with the federal government uh, on other facilities. As Mayor Hancock and Patty have said, there's really no substitute for having halfway houses other than these facilities. And in fact, the city council's decision is already leading to more people being stuck in jail who haven't finished their sentence, but they could be let out into a halfway house, according to the, the sheriff's office and the people management. But, but they can't be now because of the Denver City Council. So the city council has done its part to aggravate the problem of mass incarceration. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Mother Nature is getting hot, and it's because of bad behavior here on the planet. This doesn't mean necessarily that the new proposal that's coming before City Council, which is going to get everyone hot again next week over carbon tax for businesses, is going to be the solution, but it was the hottest July ever on record in the world. David. The Denver City Council's so-called pollution tax to drive up electricity costs on businesses in Denver, which, of course, then drive up the costs to consumers and, and everyone else, um, whatever the, the grand issues of global warming, clearly in Denver it is just a pretext for more government control uh, of its insatiable appetite for citizens' money. Penn. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it has. Um, and I'm talking about the Great Hall Project out at DIA. We talked, we've been talking for months about how the city has ignored and mismanaged that project. Um, four months after it started, it was, it was extended for two or three more years. So now it won't be done until 2025. The cost is nearly doubled. The city retaliated by citing the contractor for a number of safety violations. And now the contractor is saying the safety violations are bogus uh, in retaliation for the fact that they've indicated that the city has not competently worked with them to manage the project. And we all get stuck with the bill. 
and we all get stuck with the inconvenience because the airport is a torn up mess. Lynn. First of all, yes, July was hot. It snowed on the first day of summer. June was a cold mess. So I just want to balance that out there, that whenever people say how hot it was, how cold it was. Um, I announced before the show started that I was going to talk about the Denver City Council, and I was so glad to see all of you guys weighed in on it. I mean, the attack on Roger Sherman, which I thought was outrageous here, the guy wants to do something about a problem, and now we're going to attack him because he's a lobbyist. I'm so tired of the thing that all lobbyists are evil. They are not. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? I went to an amazing memorial on Saturday, Sunday for Marty Chernoff, who founded Tracks. He, he got into the gay bar business kind of by accident, but what he did is a create a community in Denver and then in other cities that was really inspirational. And his memorial, where you had Wellington Webb stand up and speak, Michael Hancock stood up and spoke, Jared Polis welcomed everyone. You realized what kind of community and openness has been created here in Denver. David. The good citizen in Springfield, Missouri, who last night stopped a mass shooter at a Walmart uh, by using his lawful concealed carry gun, and um, no one was was killed. Uh, Immediate armed response to uh, mass shooters is not the only solution uh, to the problem, but it's part of it. And people who aren't willing to talk about that are really just playing politics and not being serious about finding solutions. We talked about John Inslin earlier in the report, but the Denver Press Club honored three people this week, Jude DeLuca, C.L. Harmer, and Julie Lucas, by having their caricatures posted on the wall. It was a wonderful event to be there to, to commiserate and hear them tell their stories about how they got into journalism and how they got involved with the Denver Press Club. And glad to see those three women who have contributed so much honored by the institution. Here, here, Channel 12 was actually profited someone from a Julie Lucas's earliest work here at this station. So, congratulations, Julie. Lynn, uh, Mark Harden, the managing editor of Colorado Politics, who edits my column. What this guy has gone through in recent months, um, as we know, Joey Bunch had a heart attack and was revived. But he said when he woke up in the hospital, he was in the hospital a long time. Who does he see at the foot of the bed? But Mark Harden holding a phone charger and waiting to see how he was. Mark's very good friend, Neil Westergaard, who had gone to write a column for Colorado Politics, died. And then it was Mark who had to do the whole thing of trying to get the police over to check on John and saw his feet, you know, in his bed and all that. And that guy has been through heck and back. And so here's to you, Mark. What a noble thing to try to come out of. There here. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. And for everyone here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.